0: Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Tuesday, November 14th, 2023. I want to start off with a little bit of a heads up uh, for a a variety of reasons, family reasons, and also because I'm just plum tired. Uh, I'm going to be taking a bit longer break than I usually take for the Thanksgiving holiday this year. Uh, The newsletter will be going quiet after Thursday, uh, Thursday night's roundup. We will return to regular programming on Tuesday, November 31st. Uh, as I think I've said before, I can always tell when it's time for me to take a break from the newsletter, and we passed that point probably three or four weeks ago, so uh, I'm going to need a little bit of time to to recharge, I think. Um, so I thank you for um, sticking with the newsletter, um, listening to it in this case, and for uh, supporting it, and um, just... Uh, you know, bear with me while I kind of get the batteries revved up again. Um, on to the newsletter tonight. Uh, there are a couple of anniversaries. On November 14th, 1965, this is the anniversary of the Battle of Yadrang, Drang, uh, the first major engagement between the United States and the North Vietnamese Army. Uh, it began on this date and ended on November 18th with both sides claiming victory, although the NVA's ability to fight the much better armed U.S. Army to a draw was a boost to their morale and probably the most important ramification of the battle. Uh, On November 14th, 2001, fighters with the Northern Alliance Rebel Coalition entered and occupied the city of Kabul, marking the end of the U.S. war in Afghanistan. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Probably had you going there for a second, didn't I? Uh, But that is the the date of the official changeover uh, of the Afghan government from the Taliban to whatever it was that the U.S. set up after that, which, of course, eventually became the Taliban again, uh, because... uh, Uh, Go Team America. Anyway, on to the news. Uh, With deaths due to extreme heat projected to increase fivefold by 2050, according to the Lancet Countdown, you'll no doubt be pleasantly surprised to learn that an AP investigative report shows that the green transition plans being formulated by most major fossil fuel companies are not green, not transitional, and not even really plans. Without any serious government pressure to force them to invest in genuinely renewable technologies, these firms are able to do things like, for example, classify natural gas development as a green investment, which is, of course, absurd, but nobody's counting. So who's to say? Uh, The main problem with these plans has long been and continues to be the fact that fossil fuel companies exempt the products that they sell – when assessing their progress toward net zero carbon emissions, firms only account for scope one emissions, which are their direct carbon outputs, and scope two emissions, which is the indirect output that results from their production process. The emissions that ensue when people burn the products they sell are considered scope three, and energy firms disavow any responsibility for them. Like tobacco companies, they argue that what the consumer does with their product is the consumer's business, not theirs. Uh, maybe people just want to you know, buy a barrel of oil and put it in their foyer as a conversation piece, or put it to some other use that doesn't emit carbon. Who's to say, and how could we really keep track of that? On to uh, the Middle East in Israel-Palestine, where early Wednesday morning Israeli forces began what they called, quote, a precise and targeted operation against Hamas in a specific area in the Shifa hospital, end quote, involving, and here's another quote, medical teams and Arabic speakers who have undergone specified training to prepare for this complex and sensitive environment with the intent that no harm is caused to the civilians, end quote. Uh, There are hundreds of patients and thousands of other people who have been trapped in the hospital by the IDF, and the chances that no harm will come to any of them in the next several hours are probably slim. Israeli officials have been insisting that Hamas's lair is located underneath the hospital, but at this point, it's too soon to know if that's the target or if this is a more limited operation. This is a developing story, so there's not much more I can say about it at this time. What I can say is that the Biden administration gave a green light to this operation earlier in the day when White House spokesperson John Kirby told reporters that the administration has quote-unquote independent intelligence- which is, of course, code for we didn't get this from the IDF, that, and I'm quoting him here, Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad use some hospitals in the Gaza Strip, including a shifa and tunnels underneath them to conceal and to support their military operations and to hold hostages. According to Kirby, this intelligence shows that the militant groups have a command and control center in Shifa uh, and have stored weapons there. Uh, Kirby insisted that the administration was not endorsing an Israeli attack on the hospital, but anybody with ears to hear or eyes to read what he said should have no doubt as to what the real intent was. Um, The rest of this I I wrote up before news of the invasion broke, so just bear with me if any of it is out of date um, at this point. I don't think it is, but uh, still, I wanted to put that caveat in there. Gazan Health Authority said on Tuesday that some 40 patients at Shifa, three of them babies, have died since that facility ran out of generator fuel on Saturday. Without electricity, the hospital cannot maintain its incubator units, and so there are now 36 newborns who are at critical risk. With the IDF surrounding the hospital, it's also been impossible to transfer the dead to a cemetery, so personnel are planning to bury some 120 bodies in a mass grave on site. Gazan officials have proposed evacuating the facility under the auspices of the Red Cross Red Crescent and sending some of its remaining patients, or sending all of its remaining patients, perhaps, to Egypt. But there had been no movement on that front at the time I wrote this, and certainly, or time I recorded it, and certainly now with the Israeli operation underway, that seems a vanishingly slim chance of that happening. The Israeli government has apparently offered to send the hospital more incubators, which is a fascinating attempt at a humanitarian gesture that would be completely pointless, because the problem isn't the incubators, it's the electricity. Uh, in other news, David Ignatius at the Washington Post reported, and I use that term loosely on Monday, that I- Israel and Hamas are close to a hostage deal, with the caveat that if David Ignatius told me the sky was blue, I'd glance out the window to double-check. The terms he reported are that Hamas would release or facilitate the release of the women and children that it and other Gazan militant groups took hostage during their October 7th rampage through southern Israel. This would be done in stages and be matched by the release of Palestinian women and children being held by Israeli authorities. It would also involve a ceasefire of unspecified duration, but perhaps five days, according to Ignatius. Uh, The ceasefire could allow some time to address humanitarian issues in Gaza, though I don't know what that would entail, and whatever it was would almost certainly be inadequate. Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen met with the International Committee of the Red Cross President uh, Mirjana Spolyarich-Egger on Tuesday, I hope I didn't mangle her name too badly, and later told reporters that the ICRC has had no access to the aforementioned hostages. It's highly unlikely that the Israelis would agree to anything involving hostages without at least proof of life, so this could be a big sticking point with respect to the potential prisoner deal outlined above. Uh, Families of the hostages, meanwhile, are marching from Tel Aviv to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's residence in Jerusalem to pressure him to take some action to secure the hostages' release. Israeli occupation forces killed at least eight Palestinians in the West Bank on Tuesday, seven of them in Tulkaram. The IDF carried out a drone strike in that city, an occurrence that's still relatively rare in the West Bank, though it's certainly become more common over the past year and in particular the past month. Israeli Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich issued a statement on Tuesday endorsing what he laughably termed the voluntary emigration of Gaza Arabs to countries around the world. Uh, That's a quote. Uh, And I guess leave or die is a choice, so uh, technically he's correct in calling it voluntary. Uh, A couple of Israeli politicians floated this idea on Monday in a Wall Street Journal editorial that was less a serious proposal than a written middle finger to Western critics of the Israeli military campaign. That piece didn't go into extensive detail about what a mass relocation would look like. Again, it wasn't meant as a serious proposal, but Smoltrich's intent is much easier to guess, and that's the permanent ethnic cleansing of Gaza and the relocation of its population as far away from Israel as possible. Smoltrich, whose ministerial brief also includes running the coordinator of government activities in the territory's office, isn't part of Netanyahu's war cabinet, but that doesn't mean he's completely lacking in influence. Uh, the U.S. and U.K. governments on Tuesday announced new sanctions targeting Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad members, along with a Lebanese entity that allegedly facilitates money transfers from Iran to these Gazan militant groups. This is the third round of sanctions the Biden administration has imposed since October 7th. Also on Tuesday, over 400 employees of the Biden administration sent a joint letter to their boss, Joe Biden, expressing opposition to the administration's approach to the Gaza conflict in Yemen Houthi rebels say they fired another barrage of missiles toward Israel on Tuesday. There's no confirmation of this, but the IDF did say that its air defenses downed a single missile near lot, uh, that we can probably assume was of Houthi provenance. The leader of Yemen's Houthi movement, Abdul Malik al Houthi, uh, delivered a speech on Tuesday pledging that his rebel fighters would continue attacking Israel. In particular, Houthi suggested that they could target Israeli commercial vessels in the Red Sea, which would certainly be an easier target for them than Israel itself. In Iraq, a Turkish drone strike killed two people, both allegedly members of the Sinjar resistance units militia in northern Iraq's Nineveh province on Monday, mo- Monday evening. Uh, the Sinjar militia was formed in 2014 with assistance from the Kurdistan Workers Party, or PKK, and is still allied with that group, which makes its personnel potential targets for the Turkish military. Elsewhere, the Iraqi Federal Supreme Court removed two members of the Iraqi parliament on Monday, one of whom just happened to be Speaker Mohammed Al-Halbusi. Uh, it's not clear why, though another MP named Laith Abdulemi uh, had reportedly sued Halbusi, alleging that the Speaker forged Abdulemi's name on a resignation letter. Quite a story. Uh, Dulemi was, as it happens, the other MP who had his term ended by the court. I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh, The ruling created a potential political crisis for Iraqi Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani. As Speaker, Haubussi was Iraq's leading Sunni Arab politician, and his support was important to Sudani's government. Three members of his Progress Party quit their cabinet posts after the court ruling, and it remains to be seen how that will impact Sudani's position. Onto Asia and Afghanistan, where Commerce Minister Haji Nuruddin Azizi apparently visited Pakistan this week, where, according to the Afghan government, he pressed Pakistani Foreign Minister Jalil Abbas Jilani. On the issue of all those Afghan migrants, the Pakistani government is presently deporting. Specifically, it sounds like Azizi raised the issue of allowing deportees to at least take some of their money and or possessions to Afghanistan with them. Deportees are currently arriving with nothing and are being housed in what are effectively refugee camps, leaving aside the incongruity of being a refugee in one's home country on the Afghan side of the border. In Myanmar, reports on Monday only hinted at some new fighting in western Myanmar's Chin state, but as more details are emerging, the situation there sounds pretty serious. According to the Chin National Front, rebel fighters had by the end of the day seized two Myanmar military outposts and were working to seize control of the Myanmar-Indian border. Uh, According to Indian media, the fighting has sent some 2,000 people streaming across that border to escape. In neighboring Rahin state, the rebel Arakan army has also been seizing military outposts, and authorities have imposed a curfew in the state capital, Sitwe, uh, as a result. Uh, Rebel factions across Myanmar have launched new offensives in recent weeks, starting with the 1027, that's for October 27th, operations by the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army and the Tang National Liberation Army in Shan state. Myanmar's ruling junta is clearly struggling to mount a response. In China, Joe Biden told reporters on Tuesday that his main goal in meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping in San Francisco this week is to restore normal communications between their governments. In particular, this would involve a return to regular military-to-military contacts, something Beijing ended in the wake of former U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last year. Any prospect of resuming those contacts was complicated by the fact that former Chinese Defense Minister Li Fu was under U.S. sanction, but as he's no longer Defense Minister, Uh, having been sacked last month over uh, apparently corruption charges, uh, that complication is no longer an issue. In Africa and Liberia, voters turned out on Tuesday for the second round of that country's presidential election, pitting incumbent George Weah against Joseph Boakai. Uh, Both candidates finished with just under 44% of the vote uh, in last month's first round. Such a close finish might augur poorly for the incumbent in a head-to-head matchup, though that's just one of many factors that could sway this vote in either direction. Uh, The polls are now closed, but I haven't seen any indication as to a preliminary count. So we'll have to wait for perhaps tomorrow or later in the week. In Mali, that country's ruling junta says that its security forces have seized control over the northern town of Kidal after battling with rebels in that region for several days. The Malian military and mercenary auxiliaries marched on Kidal after the United Nations peacekeepers vacated the region as part of their ongoing withdrawal from Mali. Kedal has been a rebel stronghold since the initial northern Mali uprising in 2012, and government control there has been nebulous at best since then. There's been no comment, as far as I know, from the rebels, and it's unclear what their disposition is at this point. In Ethiopia, according to Addis Standard, Fano militia fighters attacked a predominantly Oromo community in Ethiopia's Amhara region last week, killing at least 25 people and displacing some 3,000 into the Oromia region. The Fano militia is still battling the Ethiopian government, but Amhara paramilitary groups have also made a pastime of preying on ethnic Oromo communities. Likewise, Oromo militias have preyed on ethnic Amhara. In this case, they apparently demanded grain from the community and attacked after residents refused to comply. On a slightly more upbeat note, the U.S. Agency for International Development is reportedly planning to resume food distribution across Ethiopia next month uh, under a one-year trial period. The agency suspended its Ethiopian food program earlier this year amid allegations that the aid was being diverted. It resumed providing food aid to Ethiopian refugees last month and is now planning to spend the next year testing whether procedural changes adopted by aid groups and the Ethiopian government are enough to stop that alleged diversion. Solid data is hard to come by, but it's possible that hundreds or thousands of Ethiopians have died because of the decision, uh, which was also supported by the UN's World Food Program, to suspend food aid. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the death toll from Sunday's Allied Democratic Forces attack on a village in the eastern DRC's North Kivu province has risen to 33, uh, according to provincial officials. ADF fighters are also believed to have been responsible for attacking a village in neighboring Ituri province on Tuesday, killing at least 11 people. On to Europe. In Russia, Vladimir Putin signed a new law on Tuesday that permits elections to be held even in parts of Russia that are under martial law. This apparently clears the way for the portions of Ukraine that Moscow claims to have annexed to participate in next year's presidential election. The effect will be to try to stitch those regions a little more tightly to Russia and complicate any possible return to Ukrainian authority. In Ukraine, the EU promised back in March, the European Union, excuse me, promised back in March uh, to supply the Euro- Ukrainian military with one million one hundred fifty-five mm artillery shells within 12 months. You'll never guess how that went. Uh, German Defense Minister Boris Pistorius told a meeting of EU defense ministers on Tuesday that no, the bloc isn't going to fulfill its commitment, and he even went so far as to criticize the fact that it was made in the first place. The will was apparently there, but EU member states still don't have the collective capacity to churn out that many shells that quickly. The effort has apparently sparked a boost in production capacity, but not enough to meet the 12-month deadline. In Sweden, that country's NATO accession may be moving slightly forward, as the Turkish Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee will reportedly take up the issue on Thursday. It's been about three weeks since Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan submitted Sweden's accession to Parliament, and it should be clear by now that the folks in Ankara are in no particular hurry to work their way through that process. There may be some impetus on the part of other NATO members to have the issue resolved in time for the Alliance Foreign Ministers Summit on November 28th, but Erdogan, has proven himself to be fairly impervious to that sort of pressure in the past. And in the Americas, finally in the United States, Tom dispatches William Hartung wonders whether the arsenal of democracy, as Joe Biden likes to call our weapons industry, really cares all that much about the democracy part. I'll read you a couple paragraphs of his piece. The list of major human rights abusers that receive uh, U.S.-supplied weaponry is long and includes, but isn't faintly limited to, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, Egypt, Turkey, Nigeria, and the Philippines. Such sales can have devastating human consequences. They also support regimes that all too often destabilize their regions and risk embroiling the United States directly in conflicts. U.S. supplied arms also far too regularly fall into the hands of Washington's adversaries. As an example, consider the way the UAE transferred small arms and armored vehicles produced by American weapons makers to extremist militias in Yemen with no apparent consequences, even though such acts clearly violated American arms export laws. Sometimes recipients of such weaponry may even end up fighting each other, as when Turkey used U.S. supplied F-16s in 29 to bomb U.S.-backed Syrian forces involved in the fight against Islamic State terrorists such examples underscore the need to scrutinize u.s arms exports far more carefully instead the arms industry has promoted an increasingly streamlined process of approval of such weapons sales campaigning for numerous measures that would make it even easier to arm foreign regimes regardless of their human rights records or support for the interests Washington theoretically promotes these have included an export control reform initiative heavily promoted by the industry during the Obama and Trump administration's that ended up ensuring a further relaxation of scrutiny over firearms exports it has in fact eased the way for sales that in the future could put U.S.-produced weaponry in the hands of tyrants, terrorists, and criminal organizations. Now the industry is promoting efforts to get weapons out the door ever more quickly through reforms to the foreign military sales program in which the Pentagon essentially serves as an arms broker between those weapons corporations and foreign governments. Uh, On that note, uh, thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter, and uh, well, I guess I should say that's it for us tonight. Thanks for reading and or listening to the newsletter, and thanks to all of you uh, for supporting Foreign Exchanges, especially those of you who are paid FX subscribers who make this newsletter possible. And if you haven't become one of those, please consider it. Uh, It would uh, help things out greatly uh, if you did. So uh, with that, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.